minister to our hearts. Uh, that's the reason we're here. And so we thank you for being here today. Let's turn to John chapter 4. And while you're turning, I'll just say it's good to see Brother Merv back with us. Uh, Merv, Merv's been out for several weeks now with uh, surgery on his feet and lots of different things going on. But Merv, we've been praying for you. And, uh, and we're glad you're back. Amen. All right. John chapter 4. <clears throat> I'd like to begin at verse 43, where we were last week. After two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all, the, all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made water, the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When, his, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, it was yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that it was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he said to, and he himself believed and all his household. This is now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray together, shall we? <clears throat> our Father, we are indeed thankful to be here this morning with our brothers and sisters in Christ. What a privilege we have each week to come unhindered and unimpeded to worship as we see fit. And we're so thankful for that. Many of our brothers and sisters around the world do not have the luxury and the blessing that we have. They meet in private and secret. They meet in danger and peril. And yet... They are faithful to meet and to worship together because that's what you have commanded. And so we pray that, that our minds, our hearts would be drawn to that kind of faithfulness in meeting as many of them are. 
We thank you for this word that you have given us. We thank you for this text today. Help us to draw out the truths of it that we might glean from it and better walk with you, closer with you, in fellowship, in purity, in confidence that you are not only our God, but you are our Lord and our Savior and our King and our Sovereign. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the last time we introduced this passage from verse 43 on to 54, we, we saw that Jesus was departing from Samaria after staying there for two days. No doubt, he taught them many things that they did not understand uh, or had, had wrong ideas about regarding the Messiah and the, uh, the Old Testament scriptures since they only had the Pentateuch and they only looked to Moses uh, there were lots of things that they needed, no doubt needed answered. And Jesus was certainly the one to give them those answers. He and his disciples then journey from, Gal- from uh, Judea, where Samaria is located, into Galilee, where Jesus had been brought up as a child. His reception in Galilee was one of a rather veiled welcome. But it was only because of Jesus' works that the Galileans had witnessed in Jerusalem that they welcomed him. And, you know, I've never personally never gotten caught up in that kind of thing. But I can see where that that would seeing something spectacular and miraculous even, uh, even if you didn't know whether it was false or not, would be a draw. You would want to see more of that kind of thing. I mean, mean, that's spectacular. That's that's a scintillating uh, sort of a thing. And so these people were caught up in that. They had seen what Jesus had done at the Passover in Jerusalem. And this is why they welcomed him into their region. But their welcome was superficial and their unbelief was hidden behind an outward display of their welcome. Remember, unbelief can hide itself Behind many faces and many voices. You cannot take for face value when someone tells you that they are a quote unquote Christian. You just can't take it for face value anymore. Because the word Christian and and everything that goes with it has been so skewed and so filled with different errors that uh, you, you have to ask a lot of different questions. Unbelief can be shrouded in religious garb and in ceremony. There are people today all across the nation who are coming to places just like this, and all they're doing is going through rote ceremony and practicing dead religion, where unbelief pervades. I hope that's not you. For you should come here with a heart that is in love with Jesus Christ, with a desire to know Him more, to worship Him in truth, to hear His Word preached to your heart. So Jesus came back 
When he went to Galilee, he came back to Cana, where he had turned the water into wine at the wedding feast. This was the place where he performed his first miracle, but instead of placing their trust in him alone for who he was and what he had done, they only wanted to see more miracles. <coughs> Certainly, at least the people that were at the wedding would have known that as word got around that he had turned water to wine. They would have then known that he was had done these things in Jerusalem. And what they're wanting to see is more of that kind of thing. More miracles, that's what they wanted. Instead of placing their trust in him, they just wanted more miracles. It's, it's the same today. I get these cards in the mail. Sometimes, you know, miracle healing services and uh, prophetess so-and-so is going to be there and uh, Apostle John or Apostle Fred or whoever he is is going to be there. And, and you know, I get, I get these things and I think these people are missing the whole boat. They're there for one reason. That's to see something spectacular or have something happen to them. They are enamored and captivated by the <clears throat> prospect of seeing something miraculous. <clears throat> when all they have to do is fix their eyes on those whose lives have been changed and transformed by the grace of God, and they would have witnessed the greatest miracle that exists. There's nothing, no greater miracle than a life of sin changed into a life of righteousness and holiness. A life of hating God and all He stands for to being changed into a lover of God and a desire to do His will. There's nothing greater than that. And yet that's not what you hear. It's not what, they, it's not what they're looking for. Perhaps Jesus came back to Cana to go cultivate and water the seed that he had planted there when he was there previously at the wedding. We don't know exactly. There are some correlations. I saw about seven different correlations from Arthur Pink about the two miracles and the place that they happened. For example, water into wine at Cana and now the healing of the official's son which took place from Cana. And so there are some, if you have Pink's, if you have Pink's uh, commentary on John, he lists all those, those out. I chose not to go that route. <clears throat> now let's look at the text, beginning in verse 46, which is where the story is introduced about the royal official, or sometimes called the nobleman. He was a nobleman. He was a, uh, a very important individual. I want you to notice the word so. That introduces this story. It is interesting that this miracle was not publicly open to the eyes of all. It was not an open miracle where everybody could just watch and there it was. The water being turned into wine uh, was more public than this one, although not completely. 
It was done without any kind of public fanfare. And that was to show the Galileans that Jesus indeed was the Messiah and that he had the power to do miracles proving that he was the Son of God. How many times in this gospel did he say to them, I've told you and you have seen my works and yet you do not believe. We see why some of that in this passage. He was an official, but he was not a Roman. He would have been a Jewish official. It's possible that he could have been a Roman, but it's very doubtful because he was an official from in the service of King Herod Antipas, who was the Tetrarch of Galilee. Now, a tetrarch is one who rules one-fourth of a kingdom. Herod the Great had three sons, uh, Antipas, Philip, and Nicanter, I believe was his name. I, I may have that wrong. At any rate, his three sons, when Herod the Great died, his three sons were made rulers over partial parts of his kingdom. The fourth part was taken over by the Roman government. It was Antipas that was the son of of Herod the Great. It was Antipas who ruled in Palestine during the life of Christ. It was he who ordered all of the boys to be, under the age of two, to be murdered in an effort to kill Christ. And, of course, the angel told Joseph, flee to Egypt to save the life of his son. He heard, this man heard that Jesus was in Capernaum. And so he made the trip. He felt compelled to go to Jesus, who had some months earlier done a miracle here. And perhaps he thought... If I can just get to Cana and maybe and find him, maybe he can help me. There's certainly nothing wrong with that kind of thinking, because Jesus certainly could help him. But there's far more to this than meets the eye. Maybe he had been in Jerusalem when Jesus did those mighty works at the Passover. And he thought, if he did that, he can help me. Maybe if he wasn't in Jerusalem, maybe he heard from others who had been in Jerusalem what he had done. However it happened, this man had received information that Jesus was at Cana, and so he came and found him there. When he found Jesus, he began to ask. In verse 47, he went to him. And asked him to come down and heal his son. He asked him. That's a very poignant word. Because the word ask here is in the imperfect tense. Which means that he did not just simply ask him once. He asked him over and over again. Literally begging him to come down to Capernaum. Now, you say uh, down to Capernaum. Capernaum is just northwest of Cana, about 20 miles. Uh, Why did he say come down? It was because Cana was higher in elevation than Capernaum. Capernaum was on the, right on the, the Sea of Galilee. 
and at its north end, and Cana was up in a mountain, more of a hill area country. And so he would have had to have gone down in geography to get there. That's why he says, come down. Critics sometimes like to bring these things up. See, it says, come down, but that's north. He would have gone up. And they just don't realize the topography. So he's continually asking him over and over, pleading with him over and over again. We need to understand, this man was an important man. He was an official in Herod's court. He would have had many people with him on the road to Canaan. He would have, he would have had a, a place, a palatial place to live in Capernaum. He was rich. He was wealthy. And so he's pleading with Jesus, who had no, who had no per, personal possessions and no place to, to lay his head. He's asking him for help. He has authority, but here we see him humbling himself and literally begging Jesus to come with him. After all, his son was at the point of death. Who would not, who of us would not plead for help for our children who were dying? He was desperate. I've seen that kind of desperation. I remember, I remember two instances with parents who were who were frantic one little boy in australia who lay in the hospital bed and his organs began to shut down and his veins began to collapse and we all began to pray and everyone was praying and the parents were just beside themselves and within an hour's time he came back and he made a full recovery I think of another instance at Children's Hospital in Minneapolis where a mother begged me to pray that God would heal her little boy whom she had adopted from China. Please tell me he's going to get well. If I have faith to believe he's going to get well, he has to get well, right? I remember sitting with her and praying, but I could not make any guarantees that he would get well. We leave these things in the hand of Him who is sovereign, who is given life, and who takes life at His will. Now there are two indications that this man's faith was not yet about the condition of his own soul. He wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about the crisis of his son. His faith is feeble at this point. He is, this, this is shown first in the thought order for Jesus to heal his son. Jesus would have to go with him. Come down with me. My son is at the point of death. This is certainly, this kind of faith is certainly different from the faith of the centurion in Luke chapter 7 who, who knelt before Jesus begging him to plea, uh, to heal his family member and Jesus was going to go to his house and he said, no, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. Just say the word. Just say the word. And that'll be enough. 
Jesus said that he had not seen such faith in all of Israel like that man had. Certainly not like the Syrophoenician woman who only wanted the crumbs that fell from her master's table. Just feed me with crumbs and that'll be enough. These obviously had greater faith in Jesus' power than this official did. You see, that's the problem. That's the problem with the spectacular. That's the problem with wanting to see miracles. Is that you see one and it's not enough. Now you've got to have another one. And another one after that. And they have to be bigger and more spectacular in nature than the last one was. Or you lose interest. These obviously had greater faith than this man. There were two assumptions that this man made that were wrong. First, he made the mistake of thinking that Jesus had to come where his son was and be present in order to heal him. That was the first assumption. You've got to come with me. Come with me. You can't stay here. Second, He only had hope that Jesus would heal his son while he was alive, but had no hope that he could raise him from the dead. Think about a faith that would say, come with me and heal my son. He's at the point of death. But if he dies, you could still, you could still raise him. That's not what he said. In other words, he wanted Jesus to come at once before it was too late and all hope was lost. All these assumptions tell us that he wasn't seeking spiritual truth or forgiveness of sin, but only a temporal cure for his son. Now, how many people are led down the path of having some felt need accomplished on a temporal basis without ever thinking of the where their soul is at what is what is, what is my what is the condition of my heart they flock to places where they're promised they will receive something now right now in this life where they'll receive something with little warning of their real need that their soul may perish Which is more important? Having things in time and and now or having them in eternity where time does not exist and never ends? Jesus, what Jesus says next on the surface seems to be rude and uncaring. But it's not really, as we shall see. Notice what he says in verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Wow. Think of this. Lord, come with me to heal my son for he is at the point of death. Oh, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Ooh. Sounds like a bit of a rough rebuke, does it not? Not? 
signs and wonders are different descriptions or aspects of the same thing perceived by people. They're not two different things. They are the same thing, but seen in two different ways. First of all, the word signs is the word simeon in the Greek. These are supernatural works performed as a proof of divine authority or majesty. These are things that are done by the Christ, the Messiah, to prove his authority and to show his majesty. It causes the viewers of the sign to think not so much about the sign itself, but of the one who performed the sign, which is exactly what a sign is supposed to do. It's supposed to point to the one who does it. Too too often, people want to see the signs for the sake of the sign themselves. And that's because everybody loves the spectacular. Everybody loves something that wows their senses. That's why people go to to, uh, July 4th fireworks shows. That's why they stand in a city and watch a building come tumbling down. Or stand on the shore and watch great waves crash into the rocks. It's spectacular. They want to see those kinds of things. Experience the the buzz that that you get from seeing it. And when you see that, you want to see more. Let's, Let's see that again. But that was not the purpose for the signs. These signs that Jesus did have a greater spiritual significance than the physical working of the sign itself. For example, when Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes, when he fed the 5,000, can you imagine what that was like? As the baskets were taken throughout the people and bread and fish appeared just out of nowhere in those baskets, just just appeared. An act of creation that, of that which did not previously exist. Oh, I want to see more of that. But that wasn't the purpose of the sign, was simply to wow the people or, or even to fill their bellies. The purpose of that sign was to draw attention to Christ as the bread of life. Or what about, how about Lazarus in chapter 11 of Luke? When, what was that sign for? I mean, that's a pretty spectacular thing if you could go to a mausoleum and they open the door and some dead man comes out and stands before you alive. That's pretty spectacular. I remember years ago, a man down in Missouri, he was a preacher of some kind, said that he, his mother had died and he said he was going to resurrect her on a certain day. And people all from everywhere gathered around to see it. And it never happened. He couldn't resurrect her. Pretty unspectacular, wouldn't you say? But it wasn't unspectacular on that day when, when they rolled the stone away from Lazarus' grave. And he cried, Lazarus, come forth. He came forth. Let him go. Loose him. <clears throat> But 
But Lazarus' raising was to signify that Jesus was the giver of spiritual life. He had told Martha that earlier. I am the resurrection and the life, Martha. He who believes in me, though he dies, will live. He is the one who brings light when there's only darkness. So so a sign is a physical illustration with a spiritual principle that follows it. What about wonders? How does that work into this? The Greek word wonder here is teros. It means something supernaturally miraculous. Supernaturally miraculous. A work that is out of the ordinary, deviating from the normal course of nature. It's just not natural. It's supernatural. It startles the senses. It speaks more of the effect it has on those seeing it than the one performing it. So here you have two words. You have signs, which is to, are things miraculous to be being done, to point back to the one who did them. And you have wonders, which, which the person doing them, people viewing the, the sign, see it, and their memory, it's always in their memory. They they can relive it. They, it's spectacular to them. They want to see the sign itself. This is what the Galileans were looking for. They were thrill seekers, always on the lookout for something to excite the next big bling or buzz to their senses. They're right there. While right in the midst of them is the creator of the universe, the person of Christ, and they would miss him for a, for a 30 second wow of a sign. People are doing that every day around us. Every day. They're missing the Christ, the one who can save them from their sins for a temporal Bling of some sort. When Jesus makes this statement, he is certainly speaking of the official who has been begging him to come, but he is also speaking of the fickle Galilean people who crave after signs and wonders. The word you is used twice in verse 48. It is plural both times. So he's not just speaking to the official himself, but to all of the Galileans that were around him that day. You people will not believe unless you can see signs and wonders. But that kind of faith is not saving faith. It is a reliance on one's capacity to see or understand without the aid of God's Spirit. Let me say that again. It is, that kind of faith is not saving faith. It is a reliance on one's own capacity to see or understand without the aid of God's Spirit. And no one comes to faith in Christ for salvation without the aid of God's Spirit. No one. 
It is a gentle rebuke, what Jesus said. It's a gentle rebuke, but it was one that was intended to cause the heart to look to Christ and His person alone, not to the sign itself. I've seen you do great wonders and works, but you are the Christ. Only you can help me yourself. That should have been the answer, but it wasn't. And that's why Jesus uses this unyielding language here in uh, verse 48. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. What is he actually saying? It's very emphatic. Very emphatic. He is saying you will, you will not be able to believe. You cannot believe. What he's saying. Yes, Jesus did miracles to substantiate who he was, but it is faith in him alone that saves and not in the miracles themselves. In essence, he is saying, you're prepared to believe me that I am the Messiah if I come down and heal your son who is at the point of death. You're prepared to believe me if I do that. That is placing a condition upon God to save. And no one's ever saved like that. There are no conditions one can give to God. If you'll do this, then I'll believe. No. How many times have you heard people say that? You see it all the time on shows. Oh Lord, if you'll just, if you'll just get me out of this, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. And I'll do this and I'll do that. That's not what God wants. That doesn't move Him. In other words, He wanted Jesus to heal His Son, but He wanted Him to do it His way. As people today, oh, they, they might want to have Christ, but they want to have Him their way. And they can't have Him their way. They can only have Him His way. And His way is in repentance and faith in Him alone. This is the dilemma of true faith. True faith that trusts in God alone does not and cannot make personal demands. Salvation is accomplished God's way or it is not accomplished at all. When the heart sees only through the human lens of the physical, it it is blind to the spiritual. But the arrow of tender rebuke of Jesus hit the mark. It hit the mark in this man's life. He literally ignored Jesus' assessments of him and of the other Galileans. He ignored that. The next statement shows that his view of Christ is changing, however. Notice what he says in verse 49. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Oh, that's much more tender. That's much more humble than before. This is a plea of much greater affection. He's saying, come down before my little boy dies. My little boy's going to die. And he says in essence, 
Alright, no signs or no signs, miracles or no miracles, please come. Jesus tells him that his little boy is not dead but living. And this is not that the boy would get well over time. This is saying that the boy got well immediately. And the fever left him. That same hour. It is not that his son would get well over time, but as as a matter of fact, his son is living. The word live is a present active word. He is now living actively. In other words, go. Your son is well. He's well. His faith is feeble and fearful and imperfect, yet it has been activated by the Holy Spirit. And we can see clearly in verse 50 that he saw the greater picture of his life and family in the hands of the Son of God. Notice what he says. So Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Literally is living. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Ah, he believes what Jesus has now said. He's not fully there yet. His faith is still weak. His faith is still still fearful. But the Holy Spirit is beginning to work in this man's heart and life. And without going to him, Jesus has granted the request of the man and healed his son in that very moment. And so he is now moved... From the third aspect of unbelief, which we talked about last week, which has has to see some sort of sign or miracle, some sort of proof, to the to the second, which simply believes what Christ has said. Don't have to see anything. Just you said it. I believe it. He had no empirical proof that his son was alive. Just the word. Of the Son of God. And he believed it. So now he is on his way back to Capernaum. He's on his way back to Capernaum. And on the road he meets some of his slaves. Now you've got to sort of get the picture at Capernaum involved in this. Because here's Jesus. About one o'clock in the afternoon, uh, according to the time frame, it looks like this took place. So Jesus tells the man, go, your son is living. He he believes the word of his son and he starts off for home. The slaves at about one o'clock in the afternoon who are tending to his boy see the boy, the fever go. The boy comes back to full health. He sits up, probably wants to go outside and play or, or have an ice cream cone or something, you know, whatever. And the slaves said, we've got to go and tell our master what's happened here. And so they, they set off down the road. Now, can't you just hear their shouts as they're going down the road this way and he's coming this way? And they, and in a distance, they see him and, and they say essentially the same thing that Jesus said. Your son is well. He's well. He's living. 
Notice, it, notice what he says in verse, 20, verse 51. As he was going down, his servants, literally his slaves, doulos, his slaves, met him and told him that his son was recovering. I don't like that, I don't like that uh, translation. I think it should be head recovered. Um, the word he uses here is the word zao, which is the word for life. Your son is living. Your son is living. Fact of the matter. He's not dead. Now, <clears throat> your son now is not dead. He lives or has recovered completely. The fever that had gripped his little body is gone. He has been restored. We see the same word, same tense used in verse 53. Your son, when he said to him, your son will live. Same word, same tense. What Jesus said was the same as what they say happened. Which substantiates the miracle. This, when, I, when I saw this, I could not help but think of that this was very much like what Jesus with his disciples when he went to Peter's home in Matthew chapter 8 and healed Peter's mother-in-law who was sick with a fever. And it says he went in and he touched her and she immediately sat up and began to serve them. Now let me, let me ask you, if you've got a, a, a really bad fever... How long does it take you to recover when you start to get well? It takes a good while. You don't just jump up and start working and serving. But when Jesus says the word or when he touches the, the person, it happens immediately. And it's the same word tense. So... He touches her hand, her fever's gone. That's what I thought of. It wasn't a long, drawn-out recovery where she had to lay in bed for a week and gain her strength. She got it back immediately. And I think that's what happened to the little boy. He just, fever left. He probably sat up and said, I'm going to go outside and play. It was the son's recovery that convinced the official that Jesus was the Messiah without having to see a single Personal miracle. The miracle was in the Lord's words. He spoke it and it was done. And it's true of everything that Jesus speaks. Do you not think that I could say to these stones, or you can say to these stones, be bread? He could have, but he didn't. So when he heard that his son was healed, he believed the gospel that Jesus had preached. And he believed it and he was saved and his whole household believed it too. And that's what happens many times when the Lord saves a dad, a leader of a household. Many times the household believes as well. And we see that in Scripture over and over again. The gospel has this inroad into the family members from the leader or the head of the house. And 
It's not a guarantee. It doesn't always happen that way. But often it does happen and has happened in Scripture. For example, Acts chapter 11. Peter reports what happened at Cornelius' household. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. Now, if they weren't saved because the leader of the house was saved, they were saved individually, but it was the salvation of the leader of the house that brought the gospel to them to be saved. Acts chapter 16, with Lydia, the seller of uh, purple, after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me faithful to the Lord, stay with me, and she prevailed. And they believed the Lord Jesus and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Acts 16 verse 31 to the jailer and the other prisoners. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. They heard the gospel and they were saved. Again in Acts 18. Again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. With the household of Stephanus. Over and over again, we see the gospel making inroads through leaders of the home. Now, God does things in different ways and in different circumstances. It's not always a guarantee that when a dad gets saved, the rest of the family will be saved. But it does often happen that way. This miracle is the second of eight major signs that Jesus did to prove he was the Messiah. It transformed the sign-seeking unbeliever from Capernaum into a genuine believer of the Word of God through the Savior. And in performing these first, in performing these first two miracles in Cana, Jesus reveals that he is not only Lord over the physical universe... He can change water to wine, but he is also Lord over the distant universe. He can make things happen from a distance. Doesn't have to be there. And he knows all the circumstances involved. He reveals his power and nothing is an obstacle to his power. These two facts... Peace and rest for the soul. For if Jesus commands the universe and distance is no worry, then we can ask what we will according to his will and he will do it from his throne in heaven, from his father's throne in heaven. And nothing can stop it on this earth. That's why Peter says in Acts 2 verse 39, for the promise, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Some of you have children that are wayward. Some of you have family members that are unbelieving. 
Continue to pray that God will save them by His grace. I know when we were, when we were desperate for our son to come to know the Lord, we knew he was unbelieving. We prayed, Lord, do whatever it takes. And that's a dangerous prayer to pray. Because then you have to be willing to let God do whatever it takes for Him to save your child. But He did. He did for us and He will for you. Continue to pray. Continue to seek Him. You don't have to see Him. But you love Him even even though you haven't seen Him. And that is a greater faith than that of the Galileans. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you that we can come together and worship. We thank you that we have these, this scripture from this inspired word of God given to us. That we can open it and study from it and glean from it the truths of this life. Life is more than the acquisition of things or fame or fortune or power or recognition. True life, true life is about the forgiveness of sins and Christ as Lord. And so I pray that you would work in our hearts. Save the lost. Revive your children. Cause us to trust in you for everything in life, no matter how small it may be. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Brother Nick, if you'll come back, please.